I don't know if you realize that, but we live in an age where large masses of people still associate themselves with Jesus and with Christianity. We recognize, though, that not all of them believe the same way that we do. Uh, maybe some would be uncomfortable coming this morning to hear what I'm about to preach. They would still call themselves Christians, though. I want to give you a few stats this morning as I thought more about this in, in relation to John chapter 6. Some stats just for our state of Washington. Would you be shocked to know that 61% of our state would classify themselves as Christians? 61%. It seems a little high, you know, and primarily because of the people I talk to, my neighbors, people I come in contact with. Uh, and just so you know, for, for, for understanding, I got this information from the Pew Research Center. And in their research, they sent out surveys and if they're correct that 61% are Christians, that means only 39% is left. I can do that math. It's kind of easy. And once we reach the 39%, we, we're done. We can shut it down and move to Africa. No one got a response from that at all. Okay. I, I don't know if that's an accurate representation of Christianity here in Washington. And the reason I come to that conclusion is because I have talked to my neighbors. I've observed our cities. I've observed our, our counties, our state. And I think that information isn't completely accurate. It's not their fault as much as those that are answering the questions. They asked how many people of, the, of the, the, all they surveyed, how many people believe in God? And you would think that if 61% would say, yeah, I'm a Christian, that that percentage would fall in line. But 55% said they believed in God. So that means 6% call themselves Christians and do not believe in God. When asked if they believe that the scriptures are actually the word of God, literal word of God, 42% say no, and only 22% say yes, that the word of God should be taken literally. Here are a few other questions. Is abortion okay? 60% say yes. Homosexuality? 69% say yes. Same-sex marriage? 61% say yes. When asked how many people believe in an absolute standard of right and wrong, an overwhelming majority, 65%, says it depends on the situation. You know what that means, right? Sometimes it's right, sometimes it isn't. So it's not an absolute standard. How would that work in the construction field? Sometimes your tape measure is right, sometimes it's not. We'd have some really weird-looking houses, wouldn't we? We need a standard. We know that. You know, there are many other questions and you don't need to necessarily go to the website, although I found it very challenging, but in all actuality, I found it very sobering to, to read through this and to see this. And the point of all this, what, what is the point of all this? You know, there are many in our state, many in America that call themselves a Christian, but in all actuality, they're not disciples of Jesus at all. When you come to John chapter six, the entire chapter, we see a large crowd gathered to see what Jesus would do next, they probably would have called themselves Christians. They would have said they're following Jesus. But when we come to the end of the chapter, there are only 12 or so left. As Jesus says in the passage this morning, there are some of you who do not believe. Very few of these people stayed with Jesus. 
When Jesus teaches the hard things of God, people fall away. There are three things I want you to see this morning as we study God's word. First, we will see the desertion of the crowd. There are many who cannot endure the teaching of our Lord. They will desert Jesus and turn back to themselves for their satisfaction in life. When the going got real, they realized they didn't want a savior but a, a food supply. Second, we see the faith of our disciples as Jesus' disciples. They, they show their faith in the Lord Jesus by affirming again it is Jesus who brings faith. He brings salvation. Where else would they go? And third, we see the deception of the one. And Jesus opens up for us this morning the veil that one of the 12 isn't really a disciple at all. Rather, he is a tool in the hand of Satan. Not all who call Jesus Lord are actually following him. I've been praying this week that God would use this message, that he would make his word real to us this morning, that he would teach us and grow us as we study. Let's look at the scripture here, John chapter six. If you haven't turned to it, please, please do. And I wanna mention now, if you don't have a Bible, we have a stack of these. We'd love for you to take one, to have as your own. Maybe a lot of you have it on your digital device. That's okay, we live in 2016, that's okay. But if you don't have a Bible or access to it, we have Bibles and we wanna make sure you have one because if you don't have a Bible here this morning, you're gonna be lost in where I'm at. I'm going in the Bible. We're gonna talk about the Bible. So. If you have it already, turn to John chapter six, starting at verse 60. And John writing this, he says, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to, the, come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. This is the word of God. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to open up your word, the freedom that we have to do this without any worry or concern that we would be harassed or persecuted. We come freely into this place to study your word. And we ask that you would give us understanding as we look into your word. Give us clarity. And we ask that you would convict, that you would do the work of changing. May we come away different this morning than when we came in by the power of your word and the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives and our hearts. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> 
John chapter six is the longest chapter in this gospel. And we have spent the last four weeks going through these 71 verses. As you remember, four weeks ago, we began this chapter with Jesus in his most public miracle as he stood before a crowd of at least 15,000 people and multiplied five loaves of bread and two fish to feed them all. For those that desire a big ministry that really want to attract a lot of people, you would be salivating for this, to stand before 15,000 plus people to, to minister. And thousands and thousands of people there waiting on Jesus, listening intently on Jesus, and seeing the incredible magnitude of what he does. He is before them and his actions displaying that he's not an ordinary guy. He's not just a mere teacher. He's, he's God in the flesh. And what's the response of the people? They want him to stick around to be their food supply. If Jesus stays, they won't have to wonder where their next meal comes from. He is the one who, from their vantage point, has come to make all things right, to supply all of their food, to, to, to protect them. But their hearts are centered on the material only. And Jesus knows this, and when the people begin to make their move to crown him king, he leaves. And following this miracle, Jesus performs yet another miracle for his disciples by walking on water. No big thing there, huh? That, that is a big thing. Have you ever seen anyone walk on water? And in that, Jesus is showing his power and his care for his disciples. It's just for them. Remember, as we finish this chapter, because I think it's helpful to understand the ending of this chapter versus the beginning. Jesus is ministering to his disciples through it all. They are vitally important to his ministry. You know, I asked the question of myself this week, what happened to the crowd? We began to focus maybe on the 15,000, but really, Jesus knows all that's going to happen from beginning to end. Where his focus is, is the, is the disciples. That's all that's left. After the 15,000 are there, it's just the 12. Later in the chapter, as he, as he comes back to land, he's, he's cornered again by a, a, a smaller crowd, not the 15,000, but they want answers. They want understanding of, of what's going to happen. What is he going to do for them? Jesus gives answers, but not the answers they want. He says that he is the bread of life, and nothing in this world will satisfy their longings. They can only think of material things that will satisfy. But ultimately, Jesus says, that will leave you hungering and thirsting. And Jesus then ends the dialogue by stating that, that the bread, the satisfaction they're looking for, is only found in himself. He is the bread of life. And the only way for you to enjoy Jesus is for him to die. And we're to consume and to, to enjoy Jesus. He is our means for salvation. You know, these are radical ideas for the Jews present as they listen to Jesus. This doesn't sound good to their ears. Jesus is informing them of his impending death. And he says, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. That offends. Which leads to our text this morning in verse 60 and following. And we see the response of the remaining crowd. They, they leave. They desert Jesus. They have had enough of his tough teaching. They want nothing more to do with him. And as the, those disciples, those followers disperse, Jesus questions the remaining 12. And he asks them what they think. 
And their response is of faith. It's different than the crowd that left. And then Jesus ends again this, this section by saying not all the 12 agree. There's one that's, that's not on board. You know, this chapter runs a, a gamut from 15,000 people down to 12 or a few after that. From multiplying bread and fish to understanding the Lamb of God proclaiming his death for his own. But there's more here. John chapter 6, starting in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if it were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that none can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, of disciples, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see the, the desertion of the crowd, they leave. And it must be said at the very beginning here, in verse 60, the word disciples here, it's it, it really meaning those that are following Jesus. They're, they're not saved. And, and this crowd of disciples have had enough of Jesus. This is the climax of John chapter 6. They have just finished hearing Jesus say that they, that they must accept him, that, that he must be their bread. And the only way this is possible is for Jesus to die for them. He, he needs to go to the cross and suffer for their sake taking their sin, taking our sin upon himself is the only way. He needs to atone for sins. And so when the, the disciples hear this in verse 60, they say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? They're not meaning this is hard to understand. Those words are difficult. They're saying this sort of talk is hard, hard to endure. They're saying, uh -uh, I cannot stomach this teaching. It is offensive to them, as Jesus says in verse 61. The Greek word to take offense is skandalizo, in which we get our understanding and the word for scandalize. What we have here, folks, is a scandal. Our culture is usually using that word only in regards to moral offense or a sex issue, a sex scandal you hear. But that's not a most comprehensive definition. It really means to be appalled and an action. This is true when it comes to the cross. The seven-day literal creation may not be fully appreciated and accepted in our culture, but it's not hated by most. The, the Ten Commandments are most definitely not practiced in all our world, but they're not hated. The story of Jesus being born is not offensive to most. They, they most gladly will celebrate that every Christmas, singing the Christmas hymns. That's not hated. Even the resurrection, even Easter. People will, will somehow say, we'll have bunnies and Jesus. It's not hated. But when we talk about Christ dying as a substitute for sinners, atoning for our sins on the cross, that's appalling to many. There's two reasons why I believe that this is offensive to people. First, if Christ dies for us and pays the penalty for our sins, then it leaves us no room to save ourselves. That's offensive. 
Christ dying on the cross condemns any work-based salvation. You cannot do anything to save yourself is what he's saying. And I've had conversations with people. In fact, a year ago, I had a conversation with a Catholic over the phone in which this man believed he was convinced that his works were part of his salvation. And when I would challenge him to go back into Scripture, to look at Scripture, and to see that there was nothing that he could do to save himself, he grew more and more angry and appalled at that. For him, it was offensive. He was appalled at the notion that he he couldn't have a part of this process. And look again at verse 62 and 63. It says, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. If these followers find Jesus' claim to authority in his possession of and position of God offensive, then what will they think when they see Jesus on the cross? And then him ascending. However offensive it was for them to hear the phrase that they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood, it's going to be 10 times more offensive to see the alleged Messiah dying on the cross. For them, this idea was completely outrageous. J. Gresham Machen, the Presbyterian theologian from the early 20th century, stated, he is our savior not because he has inspired us to live the same kind of life that he lived, but because he took upon himself the dreadful guilt of our sins and bore it instead of us on the cross. People are appalled at the cross because it removes any option for them to work for their salvation. They have to only trust in Jesus. And to trust someone outside of themselves seems impossible to the natural human. The second reason I believe the cross is is scandalous is that it demands for an exclusive faith in Christ alone. Folks, we're exclusive here. It's Jesus. You can see it littered out throughout this chapter. You can see it littered throughout the Gospel of John. The exclusive nature that it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is the only way to have eternal life. You know, Macon again recounts, he says, what struck the early observers of Christianity most forcibly was not nearly that salvation was offered by the means of the Christian gospel, but that all other means were resolutely rejected. The early Christian missionaries demanded an absolutely exclusive devotion to Christ. Salvation is not merely through Christ, but it was only through Christ. And that little word only lay all the offense. Without that word, there would have been no persecutions, Without its exclusiveness, the Christian message would have seemed perfectly inoffensive to the men of that day. The offense of the cross is done away, but so is the power and the glory of God. If we today in our culture say that Jesus is a way, we're okay. The culture is okay. Folks, he is not a way. He is the only way. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And just as the people then, people today feel like Jesus is an egomaniac. How can he say these things about himself? Some feel it's impossible to believe that God would do that to his son. How could God the Father do that to his son? They call it cosmic child abuse. They can't stomach 
what Jesus must do to bring salvation. And in all of this, they have lost what is needed for salvation. Folks, our, our culture is racing towards this idea of inclusive behavior. That there's, we can't have intolerance in any way. We, hour by hour, we're getting closer and closer. Right? We, we, we go to bed on Thursday, and we wake up on Friday morning, and it seems like the world went like this. That is the world in which we live. It's incredibly difficult to stand against this world and say, the Bible says that is wrong. And it's going to get harder. Our kids are going to grow up in a world that not only rejects the gospel, but will condemn it as horrific. What's the response of the church? What do we do with that? Well, we preach the truth. We stand on God's side and we say, this is what God's word says. Are you training your kids to be bold in the gospel, parents? Do your kids know what they believe and why they believe it? And you may think, well, they're not in public school and they're not in these public formats, but if they have any friends at all, they're going to have these questions. My kids are homeschooled, but we are surrounded in our community with other kids. Those questions come up. And what are we doing as parents to make sure that they know and understand the gospel, that they believe that this is the truth of God's word? And if you're not already, preach the gospel at home. Talk about the gospel. Remind and rehearse. Go through it and and remind your kids again of the hope that you have that the world cannot offer. You do not want your kids leaving church, leaving your home, and deserting Jesus. These disciples deserted Jesus. They leave. They want nothing more of the safe, uh, of what Jesus says is life-saving message because for them, if they accept this, it means they lose themselves and they don't want that. You know, here's the scary thing as I thought through this, this entire chapter. If we take this entire chapter of John 6 and try to overlay it here in our culture, you know, and, and these people in John 6, the ones that ultimately reject Jesus Christ, who desert him. These people are not your coworkers who never don the door of the church. These people are not your family members that have no desire to talk about God. The people that will desert Christ are some of those that attend this church. They come every once in a while because they think they're following Jesus. They think they just want a little Jesus in their life because they'll be okay. And they come. It may even be someone here sitting this morning. There are false disciples that walk into our door. People believe that they're saved because they prayed a prayer at camp at 15 years old. And since then, they have no evidence of fruit. No desire to love God. No desire to read his word. No desire to serve others. But they have the certificate. 
Folks, this keeps me awake at night. Not because I can do anything about it and in myself, because it fuels my desire to continue to preach the gospel from this pulpit week in and week out. I'm not going to get finished preaching the gospel. That is the hope. That's the only hope. And what's the, what's the needed response for people that say they follow Jesus? Well, Jesus says in this chapter, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. He's saying, I have to be your meat and drink for life. And what I'm understanding of that is he's saying, I have to be what makes you tick. So I ask, what makes you tick? What is the basic motivation for your life? What what keeps you going here in this world? What is your meat and drink for this world? If you're honest with yourself this morning, you probably realize that maybe it's possibly a number of things. Is your meat and drink the stuff on this earth? Is that what really makes you tick? Earning money, getting stuff, have a nice comfortable home, nice cars, nice clothing. Is that what makes you tick? Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it makes you tick because you find true happiness when you're with someone that loves you, that shows affection to you. And let me say to you this morning, if you're single here this morning, stop chasing after relationships in this world if you're not chasing after God. He's not in the middle of it if you reject God. He's not leading you to it if you have nothing to do with God. Start chasing him. The relationship with God. Maybe, maybe it's respect that makes you tick. You need the affirmation of others. You need, you need them to tell you how much you're needed and appreciated. That's what makes you tick. Or maybe it's peace. You know what I mean? Zero conflict. Are any of you there? You like peace. I write this for myself, okay? Maybe your meat and drink is that you want your kids to obey you. Peace. That can't be your meat and drink. It can't be that life just has to be hassle-free. And that's what we need. What is your meat and drink for this life? What, what makes you tick? Because whatever it is, that's what you've determined is your meat and drink. And what Jesus is saying to us this morning He is saying to us, I have to be that. I have to be your meat and drink. I must be surpassing your life. He is saying, it isn't good enough for me to be your teacher. It isn't good enough for me to be your healer or your inspiration of good works or your sugar daddy. That is not good enough. He says, I must be the nucleus. I must be the center I have to be the thing that makes you tick. Jesus has to be the reason why we get up every morning to live life in this world. He has to be the thing that that brings life and energy into existence in this world. Because if he's not, we're going to get beat down, exhausted, because we're living for other things. And they will always disappoint. He says, I must be your meat and drink.
Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that anyone who has a conceivable alternative to Jesus Christ is not a Christian. Anyone that has a conceivable alternative to Jesus Christ is not a Christian. If you're holding back a card thinking, I'm going to get out of jail with this, you're wrong. If you have any other option of being saved in this life that's outside of Jesus Christ, then you're not a Christian. Jesus must be your salvation. He must be your food and drink. And you see in this chapter, this is a stumbling point for people. They don't want Jesus at the center. They, they want to be at the center of their life. And they reject the notion that they must submit their life to Christ. This isn't right for them. So they look for other ways. And John writes, they leave. They desert Christ. What about you? Are you following Jesus or are you just casually looking at him? Are you like the thousands that we looked at earlier here in Washington State that just tick the box? Yeah, I'm a Christian. No, I don't believe in the Bible. No, I don't believe that God is real. Or maybe, as D.A. Carson says, all you, all you want is just $3 of the gospel. Just $3. This is what Carson writes in his commentary. I would like to buy about $3 worth of the gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies and cherish self-denial and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want happiness, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of the gospel, please. Is that you this morning? Jesus says, I have to be your all or nothing. There's no middle way. There's, there's no sort of Christians, folks. There's either believers or non-believers. And where are you? Are you following Christ or are you like the crowd? Are you like the 14,988 that leave the 12 and are gone? Jesus continues here in verse 64. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who were, who were those who would, did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus knows everything. Does that surprise you? Maybe it terrifies you this morning. He knows exactly what you're thinking. So this wasn't a random thought by Jesus here. He again reaffirms what he has already taught in verses 37 through 44, that God is absolutely sovereign in his election and salvation. And in the end of these followers, 
it's a desertion. They, they, can't, they can't handle it. It's too much. They've had their fill and they turn away. What they wanted, Jesus didn't offer. And what he offered, they didn't want. And they turn away and prove to those looking on that who they really wanted to follow was themselves. Jesus was too much for them. What we read next in the following verse is the faith of those disciples remaining. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, Jesus is turning to them and says, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus turns and questions the remaining 12. And it's not a, a moody or a, a doom and gloom kind of question, but he's challenging them. He's saying, surely you don't want to go away as well, do you? And this question most definitely is for their sake, not his. Jesus is not asking the question because he's confused. He knows everything. They need to give the response more than Jesus needs to hear it. And it's refreshing to hear the response of the remaining few. You know, many commentators mention the significance of verse 66 because it says the, the watershed of the gospel. The things begin to get more and more difficult for the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. The, law, the line has been drawn in the sand, so to say. And those that truly desire to follow Christ are now, are now putting with their money where their mouth is. And Peter, Peter here is the spokesman. No shock, right? We don't think about Peter. He's, he's anxious to speak up. And he, and he answers Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And what a statement that is by Peter. Where would they go? You know, I often wonder when I, when I read through this uh, of what it would be like to, to take Peter from there and put him in our culture. I even kind of picture the dialogue. You know, I, how, how would it look? Um, would, be, would he talk with his hands like I do? My wife makes fun of me occasionally. I like to talk with my hands. Would Peter that way? I think he would. be very demonstrative in his, in his speech. But can you picture with me this, this happening here? Jesus is standing before the 12. They're outside of the synagogue at this point in Capernaum. And the question comes as the rest are fleeing. You know, they, they can see the, the crowd leaving. And they look around and realize it's just us. And Jesus turns to them and says... How about you? Imagine with me Peter's response. Lord, where should we go? Should we go with the people that deny your existence? I mean, there are lots of those people out here. We weren't created, they say. We, they say we just evolved from a bunch of goo and those monkeys are my uncle. And for them, life here is just an accident. They, they say, I just, I just happened to be here. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. There's no point. I mean, if I go with them and believe then there's no God, then there's no reason for right and wrong. It's all subjective. Lord, I can't go with them. They don't have the truth. Lord, where should we go? Should we go with the people that do not believe sin to be serious? There are many here that believe in our culture that sin is just a bunch of oopsie-daisies. It's really not that big at all. Should I go with those that believe that sin has no power? But those that deny the, the enslavement and bondage of sin? 
They say they're not slaves to sin, but that sin just might cause a few problems here and there, but it's not consuming, they say. Jesus, I can't go with them because I know myself. Before knowing you, Jesus, I was a slave to sin. It held me captive. Lord, where should we go? Should we go with those who deny the sovereignty of God? Should we entrust ourselves with those people that believe that sinners can raise themselves from the dead and spiritual life is just a personal choice? Should I go with those that that believe that faith is the creation of humans instead of a gift from God? With those that think they're masters of their future, that find their meaning in themselves and reject the idea of submitting to God. God, I can't go with them. There's no future with them. It's only with you. I submit to you. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? I love the response of Peter. It echoes in my soul. Lord, where would I go? Do I go back to my former life? Would anyone raise their hand and say, I want to go back to my former life before Jesus? Where would we go? He has the words of eternal life. And I believe them. And I know now that he is the Holy One of God. That God has redeemed me. That he bought me back from the slave market of sin. He purchased me. And he has shown me time and time and time again that he is faithful. God, where would I go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, it's important that Peter says this. That he has the words of eternal life because just hearing the words are not enough. You have to believe. So to go anywhere else but to follow Jesus would not only be a crisis of faith, But for me, it would be an intellectual suicide. It would be dishonest for me to go anywhere else. It cannot be done. All of my hope is tied up in Jesus Christ. He's it. The last section of this chapter, we see one last thing that Jesus mentions, and it's the deception of the one. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Jesus again reminds Peter, then the remaining disciples, that it is Jesus who chose them to be disciples. He also knew that Peter's confession didn't apply to the entire group. There was one that was not following Christ, and Jesus, for the first time, clues the group in of what's going to happen. He's, he's unfolding what's going to happen. He says, one of you is a devil. Find some irony here in the situation. Peter speaks up for the entire group and says, we believe and we know. And Jesus says, we? Did you say we, Peter? Peter, you may not believe it now, but one of you is a devil and will betray me. Judas never believed in Jesus. 
And if one of Jesus's closest followers will betray him, we should never be shocked in our day to see those who appear to be disciples of Jesus Christ and then abandon him. Judas saw Jesus's signs. He heard his sermons. He traveled with him for a couple years. He got to know him in a way that few others did. And yet in the end, Judas betrays Jesus. We should never be shocked in our world when we see this, but we are. There have been some in my life, fellow classmates of Bible college that do not follow God. Facebook is a blessing, and it's also difficult. Because when Facebook came, I began to understand as years go by where my classmates are at and what they're doing. And it's sobering to see men that I studied with for four years in Bible class after Bible class, desiring to serve the Lord and now rejecting him with their life. They graduate with a Bible degree, so they must be disciples, right? Well, a degree doesn't mean you're saved. By the way, at the same time, I had students, classmates that got saved in Bible college. Explain that one. How'd they get in? I don't care. They got saved. And so for the ones that I've known over the years that have deserted Jesus, only God knows if they're saved. But by their actions, their refusal to repent, their, their refusal to, to follow God, it would seem that they were never truly saved to begin with. You know, there's so much in these 11 verses at the end of John 6. One thing to know and recognize is that not everyone will be saved. Not everyone will be saved. And, and I don't know about you, but that's difficult for me to understand. It's difficult for me for, to swallow. And you know why? Because I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And I love him. And I want everyone in on this. So it's hard to recognize that not everyone will be saved. I mean, if you experience salvation, right, you want others to experience it too, right? I mean, if you're not an affirmation of that, then please come talk to me. I want to talk with you. I mean, when you experience what God has done, we want other people to experience that too. But as you read in the scriptures, it's not the case. Jesus informs us in the parable of the 10 bridesmaids. They all look the same on the outside, but five of them are really waiting for the true bridegroom and five are not. They end up rejecting him. Jesus shares with us the parable of the two houses being built, right? You know the parable built on the, on the rock and the sand. One is saved, one is not. The parable of the four soils, which for us to understand is the four hearts, and the word of God falls on those four hearts. And of the, what falls results in vegetation and germination, and something grows up, but in the end, only one brings any sort of fruit. And the hard truth to that, folks, is not everyone will be saved. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ, if you do not have a relationship with him, I want you to listen carefully this morning. Eternal life is an incredible gift that is freely given. 
But the only way to receive some gifts is to accept it with a very insulting statement. When we read in John 6 that we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood, we can be insulted. We, we struggle with that. And, and, and those standing around Jesus most definitely were insulted. They, they, they struggled with what Jesus was saying. How could Jesus say such a thing? But this is a gift from God. We must accept it because it's good for us. It's talking about Jesus dying for us. Have you ever received a gift that was awkward to receive? Let's say it's your birthday and someone gives you a gift of how to lose weight. Thank you. Or, uh, you know, a, a, a cleaning service. Like, happy birthday, here's a cleaning service. Ten free cleaning of your home. Thank you. Yeah, they're communicating something, right, in that gift. A little awkward, a little bit of a struggle. When we receive the gift of eternal life, it's saying, thank you, Lord. I know I'm a sinner. I am crooked down deep. I cannot save myself. There is no help in myself. I can't do this. God, I'm hopeless without you. And to the world, that's insulting. But the gift is amazing. If you're here this morning, you've never placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, do it today. Don't let anything stop you. Don't sit here this morning and say, I can't go to God this morning because my motives aren't pure. Don't do that. Your motives don't save you. That's your way of saying that you, you can't earn salvation. You, you can't earn it. Real sincerity is to say, I, I see that, every, that even my motives aren't right or sufficient. Real sincerity is to know that I'm, I'm not sincere, but I need you. And I confess that the only hope I have is what Jesus did on the cross. I don't trust in my sincerity anymore, but I only trust in what God has done on our behalf. The only way to be saved is to trust in Christ alone. If you're holding back a get-out-of-jail card, it won't save. There is nowhere else to go. Jesus is our only hope. Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne humbled by your word this morning. Father, I think of those that are seated here this morning that have been coming that have been playing the game of sorts, the, the life they think they should leave, they lead and they think that if they just add a little Jesus to their life, things would go better. And Father, I pray that you would help them, convict them to know and understand that they need to bow the knee to you, to recognize that 
Salvation is only through you and not through themselves. There is no list of good works to do so that we can be saved. I pray that they see and understand through John's gospel here. Salvation is through believing that Jesus came to die for them and that their, their meat and drink for this world isn't, isn't stuff, but it's him and him alone. I pray that they would be saved this morning. Father, I pray for us as believers that we would be bold in the proclamation of the gospel, that we would realize that the only Bible that the people might see in our life is our, is our lives, is us, as we proclaim the scriptures. May we do that boldly. May we do that graciously and lovingly. Father, I pray that we would never grow so comfortable in this world that we forget that we were not made for this world, that we we're made to live with you, that we're just passing by. Remind us again, Father, of that this morning, that we're here because you have work for us to do. Help us to joyfully submit our lives to you, to serve you, to preach the gospel wherever we go. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.